0: Hello, my friends, and welcome back to another episode of the Legendary Life Podcast. I'm your host, Ted Rice. This is the show that's all about taking your health, body, and life to that next level. I'm super excited about today's guest and today's topic. We have endocrinologist and obesity medicine expert, Dr. Carl Nadolski. He is a medical doctor who specializes in hormones and specifically with helping people who are overweight or obese or have diabetes. He's going to be here today to help you separate the fact from the fiction about hormones, about fat loss, and your health. And the reason why I'm so excited is because right now, if you go online, what people are talking about, oh, you got to raise your testosterone. The reason why you're fat is because your testosterone levels are low, or uh, the reason why you can't lose fat, and this goes for men and women is because your hormones. Well, you're going to learn the realities today. You're also going to hear about blood work, reading your blood work, things that even most doctors don't know. And Carl does a great job of breaking it down in an easy to understand way. He keeps the jargon to a minimum and he just really knocked it out of the park on this one, really hit a home run, and I'm excited for you to listen. Before we get to that, I want to answer a few quick questions about Legendary Lean because people have been asking me, oh, I want to join Ted, but do I have to purchase supplements in your program? The answer is we have you take a few vitamins and minerals that you buy on your own uh, just to manage the whole uh, health process as you're going through this diet, through this body transformation, but no, you don't rely, we're not relying on supplements to do the fat loss. We're having you take some like magnesium uh, and some other things for your health, but those are inexpensive. So no, you don't have to buy supplements from us. We don't sell supplements. We tell you what to get. You get it on your own from wherever you want. We don't get any money or anything like that, but there are a few things that you should take when you cut calories, when when you're on a restricted diet. So that's what we have you do. I'm a vegetarian. Will I be able to do Legendary Lean? This is a great question. And when you're talking about vegetarianism, you're asking about the quality of the food or the types of food. And what I have to say to you is absolutely. We've had two people who were very successful vegetarians. We haven't worked with a lot, but we had two people who did very well being vegetarians on this program. And they lost body fat. One hit their target weight. Shout out to Martina. Very happy about her. Sri was the other one who's doing very well. And uh, absolutely, it doesn't matter what you eat, the types of foods that you eat. We can help you do that. We customize the diets. And that's really the benefit of, of what we do in this program. So another one was, I have a hernia. Will that stop me from doing legendary lean workouts? And the answer is no. We're relying on diet instead of hard workouts for the fat loss. You'll be amazed at how little you'll be working out or how little you need to work out. We can accommodate people who want to work out a little bit more, but we require kind of a minimum. And it's not hardcore exercise. We're using Diet as the fat loss method, and then the exercise to help supplement that, help maintain your muscle mass to help you be healthy because exercise is awesome, although it's not super effective for burning fat. So those are the three top questions I've got. And we've opened up the cart for one more day because I know a lot of people are on vacation. So go to legendarylifepodcast.com slash coaching and sign up there. All right, on to today's episode with the facts and myths you need to know about your hormones, your health, and fat loss with endocrinologist and obesity medicine expert, Dr. Carl Nadolsky. Dr. Carl Nadolsky, welcome back to the Legendary Light Podcast. All right. Thank you very much. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to have you back on. You were on Episode 38, when we talked about what you need to know about nutrition, hormones, and supplements, and we talked a lot about your background and how you got into all this, your wrestling background. So if you're listening right now and you find this episode extremely intriguing because we're going to be getting into some really important topics here, you'll want to go back to episode 38 and listen to that to get Dr. Nadolski's full story. Carl, we have you on today to talk about the dangers of dieting and about how hormones play into fat loss. Before we jump into that, can you tell everyone listening a brief overview of of who you are and what you do?
1: Yeah. So um, I'm a board certified endocrinologist. I also have a subspecialty in obesity medicine. Um, obviously, I had to be board certified in internal medicine before uh, endocrinology. Um, I started off wrestling for Michigan State University, did my medical school down at Nova Southeastern University, did internal medicine at uh, Portsmouth Naval Medical Center, uh, did my endocrinology fellowship up at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center, and um, I'm just about ready to transition up to Spectrum Health in Western Michigan to be a part of their endocrinology department and uh, and work with Michigan State a little bit and and keep doing what I've been doing. Try to develop an obesity center of excellence and taking care of patients.
0: Absolutely. And, and what I love about having you on the show today, besides being an endocrinologist, so you are the person who studies hormones. So the most qualified person to talk about how mm-hmm. hormones interplay with obesity and fat loss, but you're also a doctor who lifts. And for <laughs> me, that's really important Because I feel like there's a big disconnect when a doctor is very unhealthy and out of shape. They may not understand the same issues that come up with people who are working out intensely, who are trying different diets. But you have also done some bodybuilding stuff as well, haven't you?
1: So yeah, my body was built basically uh, throughout youth and adolescence, getting ready for wrestling and football and stuff. And and I had a body that kind of looked like a bodybuilder. So uh, a few times, uh, right, bu- a couple times right before medical school, I did a couple shows, and then, uh, and then I, I'd always thought I would do more. And then um, it wasn't until my wife decided she wanted to do some, I guess she did. What do they do? Um, physique competitions, and so, um, so then I did a couple with her, uh, kind of on a whim. But you know, I, I, I preach that it's what's on the inside that counts. And that's true and that's evidence based. And I believe that. And so I keep up my dietary quality and my fairly high level of exercise, not just for the physique of it, but for what's on the inside that counts. It just happens to keep the physique that way. And so, you know, if I need to, you know, jump on stage or get back on the mat, I feel like I'm always ready to do so, at least to put up a good fight, anyways.
0: Absolutely. I love that, man. Well, listen, we're doing our best to get out good evidence based information regarding diet, because there's so much out there. I don't know if you've seen like some of the stuff on YouTube, some of the things that are targeting I'm 40. So things that are targeting guys, my age, it's like, Oh, the problem is you have low testosterone and you need to eat fat to build your testosterone levels and and do these combo exercises with light weights that and that's going to boost your testosterone and mm-hmm. like these couple old guys who look great but just the information yeah. is shite uh and yeah man to talk to us a little bit about what we need to focus on and, and about calories and and our, our metabolism
1: yeah so you know so metabolism is a pretty complicated thing you know that's that's the chemical processes in our body that uh, basically a living organism needs to keep on going, and it requires food. And so, technically, the food needs to be our energy combined with oxygen. and And what happens to that is metabolism. And you know, for simplicity's sake, the metabolism that everyone thinks of is what kind of coordinate coordinates the energy in, energy out, and ultimately the. Uh, anabolic the building side of it that could be muscle or it could be fat and we generally don't want fat especially the fat that's in our abdomen and our liver and in our muscle cells and that uh, can lead to the healthy fat being dysfunctional and that's we call that adiposopathy not to get too doctory words but uh and and that's and that's bad and so that happens when there's an energy imbalance and so it always comes back to calories in calories out The other thing I notice out there is that people oversimplify that too. So it certainly is physics. There is an energy balance of uh, calories in, calories out, but it is a little bit more complicated. And um, I can shoot you a slide if you want to share it online from the Obesity Society that shows all the complexities that go into disturbing that balance and the, the causes of obesity. From the hormone standpoint, all the hormones you've asked me about and that we could even talk about. Play a role somehow, but optimizing lifestyle, uh, saves some, you know, other than like real pathology problems that I see, um, right. those are just, just basic quality lifestyle plans are the best way to just keep all those hormones on your side, as opposed to working against you in that whole metabolic process. Cause they do play a role. Most people really shouldn't be worrying about it, though. There's definitely too much banter out there in the layperson, media, um, internet, stuff like that. And, and, and I think it's because it's sexy. And I even, I made a note. Absolutely. That, you know, yeah, it's this sexy thing. And obviously, I think it's sexy because I decided to be a clinical endocrinologist. So I want to fix people's real hormone problems. But most people don't have hormone problems. And so when you see things like what those guys said, oh, you're 40, it's your testosterone. Well, one, it could really be your testosterone. Two, it could kind of be your testosterone, but it could just be your poor lifestyle or your obesity or the sleep apnea uh, coined kind of a functional hypogonadism or even an obesity-induced hypogonadism. Um, But otherwise, a lot of these little changes that happen with diet and exercise, they're not generally clinically relevant for the levels of testosterone, but the whole milieu might certainly affect individuals for better or worse.
0: Yeah. And I want to dive into that a little bit more down uh, down the way of our conversation in in a few. What I'd love to focus on right now is when we start preaching this, oh, it's calories in, calories out. So great. Let's look at our calories. Then let's cut the hell out of them so that we lose fat as fast as possible. We lose weight as fast as possible. Can you tell us a little bit about the dangers that can occur if we go too low or if we get too aggressive with cutting out our food?
1: So this is a very individualized sort of prescription, first of all, because some people have severe obesity where they have a lot of excess adiposity and the truly true severity of that could be the complications of that excess adiposity like diabetes for that's the the best example I have. Whereas there might be somebody our age, you know, around 40, you know, not quite right. You know, maybe they gained a little bit of weight. Um, That's a very different situation than somebody with severe obesity. So, you know, talking about like a very low calorie diet, something around 800 calories. Now that's pretty severe for someone who's, who has a lot of muscle and just needs to lose a little bit of fat, but that's actually not unreasonable, uh, in someone with a lot of adiposity who have, who has a lot of fat basically to, to live off of, if that makes sense. And then it's actually very good. They, They can fix a lot of their problems from some You know, even if it's intermittent fasting, which if you would have asked me two years ago, I would have said no way to that. But the evidence has proven me wrong on that. Um, But just fasting in general, patients with diabetes, that suddenly their insulin resistance goes away. Um, So when we use, say, protein shakes, meal replacement shakes uh, to help patients do uh, aggressive initial weight loss, um, they actually tend to have better outcomes. But they generally can't maintain that forever. So while we're doing that, we want to help people learn to, um, ad- adapt to and adhere to a more quality based diet that might be close to that, that many calories. Um, but it depends on how much they're working out and lifting weights, which we want them to do too. Mm. So, um, so certainly for some people, a very low calorie diet is probably not a good idea. Um, but for some, it, it can be, especially initially, um, because early, uh, response to whatever weight loss therapy always predicts long-term good outcomes. But again, that's in patients with real obesity. So patient right, which
0: is 40% body fat and up.
1: Well, yeah, I would, you know, even though I hate, personally, for me, I don't use BMI because I have a lot of muscle and I'm lean. But for most, most people in the world, the BMI actually works out pretty well. So, you know, so you have a BMI of- over 30, but certainly 35, 40 and above. And then, and yeah, and you're, you're about right. You know, you get into those body fat percentages. Certainly we can treat those patients aggressively, but we still want to optimize their protein because we want to make sure they're not losing muscle. In fact, uh, you know, we mentioned, uh, Alan Aragon, although I don't think he was involved in this one, but the, 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 um, international society of sports medicine, they just published a couple statements. Um, and mm-hmm. one was on protein and, and the other one that, uh, Alan Aragon was involved with what was just diet and body composition. and And even as a doctor, I know those are geared more towards maybe the fitness arena and and um, maybe athletes out there. But I actually thought some of their points were were good and pointed that could be used for um, doctors and patients. And I actually sent it out to all my colleagues because I thought they were pretty good. and and we do need to maintain some decent levels of protein intake. Um, and they they were even talking about some of the evidence up to three grams per kilogram. Now you wouldn't do that for the patient who has a BMI 45 for kilogram for kilogram. That might be for ideal body weight kind of thing. Um, But if we actually get those patients to work out like we want them to, we want to maintain all that muscle because muscle is healthy for sure. Right. Whether or not it has a ton to do with metabolism, like we want it to per our discussion today. um, It turns out it's, it's not as awesome for metabolism as we always thought and hoped
0: doesn't burn a thousand yeah. calories per pound of body right red. it's like 20 right. or 30 calories something yeah. like that per pound yeah. of muscle in,
1: in fact it was, it was some of the biggest loser studies that have really kind of disappointed us um you know kevin hall from the nih has, has worked with sure. that and um actually the 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 doctor for the biggest loser um has even given some of the data to my colleagues before i got into my fellowship so we actually know them we have some sort of connection, but the bottom line with one story that i tell a lot of patients is the 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 patients who were in the biggest loser they did everything to the extreme that we probably would never do but at least they were you know dieting and exercising they had more muscle than a com- kind of a comparable group of patients getting gastric bypass right and it turned out that the uh, metabolism in the patients who did the biggest loser tanked a little bit more than maybe expected, and then it didn't recover as well. And that was compared to the, the Roux-en-Y gastric bypass patients who had less muscle right? and better. And now that gets into, talk about some hormones, that gets into neuroendocrine, gastroendocrine, the, the hormones from the gut that improve with, with gastric bypass that have actually helped us figure out medicines that we can use without surgery and, and things like that. So, It is very complicated.
0: Before we get down too much, I want to come back to the calories and even something that a a guest on the Legendary Life podcast said, Dr. Stefan Guillenet, are you familiar with him? Yeah. Uh Yeah, great guy. He was basically saying he's an obesity researcher. And if you're listening right now, you should go back and listen to his episode. I forget what number it was, but it was called the new science of fat loss because all this neuroendocrine Activity and how it plays into our uh, body fat regulation and and behaviors is so important. But he was saying if he were a type 2 diabetic, he would go on a a 500-calorie-a-day diet. And he said, I can't really say that, recommend that to people because it's supposed to be medically supervised. Right. But can you talk a little bit about that? Then let's get into why some diets are medically supervised and how many calories how many, what is that limit where it's like, okay, you are really on the side where you can have some electrolyte imbalances that get serious or cardiac abnormalities that could even cause death?
1: Sure. So what he said, and yeah, right. He, so he's a researcher and I'm a, I'm a clinical endocrinologist. So that's where, you know, the rubber meets the road a little bit. The guys like that do more of the research. We learn about it and give the recommendations in the real world. So he's right. And that goes back to what I said about we, for a patient with severe obesity and diabetes, we should put him on some sort of, you know, maybe it, whether it's intermittent fasting or a or a very low calorie meal replacement diet. And he, he used, you know, 500 calories because that suddenly makes the diabetes kind of go away if your pancreas still works. Now that's a whole different discussion for probably another day. The progression of type two diabetes and the, that's the whole thing. But, um, but if it's still working, it you know you start to see dramatic improvements in insulin sensitivity and glucose tolerance soon, you know, in a few days after you start doing that. Um, In fact, you know, when we compare, you know, so, you know, gastric bypass patients often can go into remission from their diabetes. Well, there's all sorts of debate on how that happens. Well, some of it's just all the weight loss. Some of it's those hormones I talked about from the gut. Well, but they noticed that it was happening right away, like right, not right away in the hospital. Well, Mm. When they compared them to just patients who were not going into surgery, but they just went in, pretended to get surgery, and prepared them the same way by fasting and being on liquid diets and then not eating afterwards, they had the same thing. So their, their diabetes resolved right away also. The problem is that's not – you can't adhere to that right. very well. And, and when you start – again, the very low-calorie diet threshold is kind of that 800 calories. You start getting under that – and already, you know, we have to very much focus on the quality of the diet because nutrients are important. You know, all those right. things, vegetables, fruit, nuts, legumes, um, different, you know, sources of protein, different types of fats, all those healthy things we hear about, um, you get too low or you fast and you don't have anything. And then you're, you're relying on your body to, to convert the fat into energy and all that stuff. And that's where we start getting into electrolyte stuff. And that's why... You start getting under 800 calories. Those meal replacement plans you hear about, even like um, uh, Metafast and Optifast, those are those are medically supervised to make sure patients are doing well and check labs once in a while and make sure their electrolytes aren't going off. Because I mean, basically, you can start getting depletion of you know magnesium and potassium and and all these things, and and then when you start screwing up your electrolytes, then you start getting cardiac problems neurologic problems and and uh you know and we ad- we admit patients with anorexia nervosa for those things and unfortunately that's a um you know a, a psychiatric disorder where it keeps becoming a recurrent thing and that's again i'll defer that but we as an internist we we admitted people for that and, and it was uh, sad and and frequent unfortunately
0: yeah I could see how that could happen. So if you're listening right now, the idea here, especially if you're interested in health and you're not obese and you're not a full-blown type 2 diabetic, you really got to take a more moderate approach when doing your calorie deficits. And and in a minute, I want to talk about what that is and, and what's the good range for a man or a woman who's healthy and exercising, no major medical issues. But, uh, you know, I, I want to talk a little bit because I had a, a coaching client who sent me this meal plan or this diet, quote unquote, diet. <laughs> Those are, there are some air quotes there for people yeah. listening because we're on video, but it was an 800 and I think 60 calorie diet. If we go by the ingredients, the nutrition facts on the labels on these products and all these supplements that you're supposed to take with it. One of them was potassium. And this was from a guy in my client's office. And it said, probably not the RDA for potassium, which I think is like 4,700 milligrams. And we can become hyperkalemic if we take a bunch of potassium pills. And I've read about people who've died from that. So this isn't just some like Oh well maybe you'll feel a little bit bad like you can kill yourself if you get too extreme with this stuff one way or the other
1: yeah i for for most healthy people exercising and eating well who don't have uh, you know significant amounts of weight to lose and and the complications from the weight i would I would definitely not go to those extremes i would I would work on the quality of the diet and and that's going to be a little different for everybody anyways <clears throat> and and if there's some Fat to lose then then you tweak a little bit more a little bit more like a bodybuilder might even though they can get pretty extreme but but you do you know you can start tweaking things a little bit more whereas most of my patients it's big things it's the low-hanging fruit as people like to say <clears throat> they're drinking soda they're going out to right. eat they're, they're eating a ton of you know, I'm not a low-carb zealot by any means, but most of my patients need to cut out a lot of carbs. And I, right. and I, I, and I have them replace them with other carbs, but the carbs are vegetables, and they happen to be a 1,000 calories fewer a day. You know what I mean? Um, so so it's the low-hanging fruit. I, I personally, you know, I, I maintain a pretty lean physique. Um, I don't count my calories. I focus on quality, and I preach um, uh, a relatively low carb-ish Mediterranean kind of plant-based sort of diet. If that makes sense, um, I think. How a many lot grams of, of protein
0: do you eat per um, pound of body I weight? I, I don't. I you don't, don't count
1: at all? Oh, not at all. I don't count at all. But I I get at least three good solid servings, and probably a lot more than that of of protein. I, in my mind, I like to get probably 150 because I work out hard and I try not to overeat. <laughs> and sure. so I definitely want to make sure I'm getting enough protein to maintain my muscles, but I'm also not, what am I trying to do? I'm not trying to like gain a ton of muscle and be a pro bodybuilder and, and, you know, go up to the next weight class or anything like that. I'm, I'm trying to be healthy again, preach, uh, pr- practice what I preach and, and that sort of thing. So no, I don't count. Um, but sometimes I do have my patients count because that might help them figure out where they are and they have different physiology they have different genetics different lifestyle that led them to this point and then it becomes very complicated and hard that gets into the leptin from the fat cells communicating with the hypothalamus and you know it's not working well and the leptin resistance and then their metabolism that's that gets into that whole biggest loser thing it's it's a an unfortunate reality um, and that's uh, hopefully DNA got into all that stuff i'm sure
0: He did, but it was the first time I have his book. It's awesome, but it was the first time speaking to him, so we kind of stayed a little bit more superficial, but we did talk about that Um, fantastic stuff. So, Carl, before we jump into hormones, let's say we have a healthy guy, a healthy woman. What is the calorie range where you would recommend for someone to lose fat, but Also maintain muscle. I mean, I've read 1,200 calories for women, 1,500 calories for men, as being the lower limit. What what can you tell us about that? So yeah, I
1: mean, again, this is it's tough because it's very personalized. But um, you know, a good rule of thumb, especially if if they have, let's say, they have at least a little obesity, Um, they're not just you know pretty well, good shape people who, who want to lose like five pounds of fat around you know right they're, they're really going to need to split hairs a little bit more but um most i'm telling you the big the most of the population is not that actually we have a we have a much bigger problem and <clears throat> so rules of thumb you know kind of just estimating um for females anywhere from 12 to 1500 uh calories a day and and for males you know 15 to 1800 uh, 2,000 calories but remember people come in a variety of shapes and sizes that have nothing to do with their the obesity tall muscular short stout you know um, those those genetics are already set in stone and, and um, you know a, a four foot 11 um, female is gonna need far fewer calories and lower, protein carbs and fat than a 6 foot 2 fairly muscular but maybe also uh, with suffering from some obesity male. Mm. So that's that could be a that could be a 2000 calorie difference. That little female might need to just eat 800 calories of quality food. And that just might be the reality for that small person whereas the bigger guy <clears throat> he might be cutting down from his his usual diet of 3500 calories to just a reasonable 2200
0: I'm so glad you're bringing this up because diet books are out there and they sell us on this generalized approach. Right. And sometimes they work for people, but the times that they don't work, it's usually because it's not specific enough. Like you gave that small female and someone's telling her, Oh, you got to eat, you know, you can't go below 1500 or 1300 calories. And that's what she, if she ate that much, she would become obese. Right. Even if she's fairly active. Right. So yeah. it, we need to keep things in context with with yeah. our with who we are, our metabolisms and and body weight and size. Yeah. Great point. Yeah.
1: And, and and that's that's one of the reasons I personally focus so much on the quality and I try to look at their diets. It would be great if everyone had a great diet log. But remember, we all underreport and the evidence shows that. If we do a diet log, <clears throat> we underreport our calories almost almost by definition, unless someone is just so anal about it. But if we, and and what I'd really like my nutritionists who work for me do, I would like them to really take their diet log and find areas in a person's current diet where they can cut empty, the emptiest calories out they can. Um, And so that will, that will help individualize that diet. You almost don't even have to think about the calories, but you can to, you know, to help guide it. But if, uh, you know if a if a person is eating um you know a pretty reasonable breakfast lunch dinner but then you notice they have a huge bowl of rice every night and otherwise it's mostly vegetables and lean meats and good fats and stuff well that huge bowl of rice might be the 500 calories that they need to cut out to change that energy deficit so that they start losing the weight and it's not because it's an insulin fairy that the carbs are causing to, you know, it, it's not the insulin hypothesis. It just, those are, those are calories that they're highly palatable and um, easy to overconsume, consume. And, and you cut those out and that's going to change the energy deficit or the energy balance for the better.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well said, Carl. Well said. And Carl, let's hop into some of this hormone stuff now. <laughs> let's talk a little bit about the interplay of hormones and fat loss. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about genetics. How does that factor into our metabolism and fat loss ability?
1: Yeah. So, so genetics are extremely, and sometimes unfortunately, very important. Um, Spencer and I always talk about how we're very fortunate to have good genetics and epigenetics, but then we followed that along with kind of a primordial prevention sort of lifestyle. We've always eaten well. We've always worked out a ton and played sports. Um, some people don't have those those benefits. And so genetics do, they can certainly influence that sort of metabolic set point that you maybe hear about. And that has, again, to do with the hypothalamic neuroendocrine control of metabolism communicated with the leptin from the fat cells and the intestine cells, and then all the hormones that we know and love uh, that come from the hypothalamus to the pituitary and, and go out through about the rest of the body. Now, those aren't necessarily as affected by genetics other than like more rare genetic diseases, Um, but it just, they all play a role in metabolism. But that said, um, we know genetics play a role, mostly polygenic, meaning it's a lot of different uh, Mm. So it's not just
0: the FTO gene, it's like a combination of...
1: Yeah, the FTO stuff, that's that's already complicated. But for, for example, the most common monogenic cause of obesity is something called melanocortin 4 receptor deficiency. Now, everyone can look that up if they want, but that has to right. do with I have not that heard that with, one. <laughs> yeah, that has to do with signaling past the hypothalamus uh, hypothalamus. That's that's where we we start targeting these things in obesity treatment. And that basically just has to do with they essentially have unregulated appetite at that point. Um, right. that's actually pretty rare. But when we start looking for those things, that's like little kids who are just Vastly, they have obesity that's just beyond what seems rational. Um, right. for most most people, that's not the case. But all the genes that contribute do contribute to some degree. But um, you know, there was recently a study. Um, I probably should have pulled it up to, to quote it a little bit better. But basically said that while all these genetics do influence our obesity, um, everyone can still benefit from energy deficit lifestyle changes. So that's really important. So people shouldn't be discouraged like, well, God, my genetics are going to predispose me to this. They might, and it might be harder. Um, and that's maybe an acceptance-based therapy thing we have to deal with. But um, uh, but everyone benefits from improving their diet, their exercise. And again, remember, it is what's on the inside that counts. I don't care what a person's weight is per se if we're monitoring and treating the complications of that obesity.
0: Yeah, that that's a good point. And that's kind of interesting that you say that because I had an issue. I, I don't want to dive into too much of my story, but I had an issue where I could still see my abs. I was still, I was working out regularly, but I had a hemoglobin A1C level of 5.6, which was right on the cusp of being yeah. pre-diabetic. Yeah. And I, I took some, I took some measures and got it back down and it's going in the right direction. But how the hell does that happen when I don't even have a history of diabetes in my family and I'm a guy who works out all the time and I wasn't gaining weight per se. Mm -hmm. Was that just a snapshot that was, um, I'll shut up and let you answer. Yeah. Well, most likely
1: that was probably not a true issue with your glucose metabolism. Um, you you can cause a little bit of glucose intolerance by going on a really low carb high fat diet now that doesn't necessarily knock down the interesting. low carb high fat yeah that and, and again right. this is not to freak out the low I carb I was doing fat.
0: that too <laughs> I was low carb that's very yeah. interesting
1: so so it can it can kind of change that sort of thing um, it doesn't mean it leads to diabetes or anything unless you gain the weight right um, other, but there are a lot of factors that can change A1C. So remember, hemoglobin A1C is the gly, the measure of glycation, the sugar basically on red blood cells, and so right. things things can alter that. That's a lab issue. Um, you know, we if we really wanted to know, we could have checked um, you know a fasting glucose and insulin on you. We could have done a glucose tolerance test and to see what was really going on. Um, So that's a
0: smaller snapshot. And your brother actually was on here and he talked about you've got to be more holistic, for lack of a better word, when when you look at blood work, because that one thing may not tell the whole story. Right.
1: So a lot of people like to get their blood work done and uh, don't know what to do with it necessarily. So it has to be in clinical context. That's why really most people should get their blood work done as appropriate with their doctor now getting an a1c done uh you know that's pretty reasonable for a lot of people um even even as you and i approach 40 that's actually pretty standard (laughs) so that's okay um but yeah just you have to take it with some context um and and it could have been you know maybe yeah it, it could have been a variety of things your blood cells could have been living longer you you could have had a little bit of uh iron deficiency anemia, making those the old red blood cells hang on longer, which artificially raises the hemoglobin A1c.
0: Mm. On the
1: other hand, people could you know bleed one day and start cranking out a bunch of new baby uh, red blood cells, and that's going to artificially lower their hemoglobin A1c. And those are just right. two small examples of how A1c is not perfect, and no blood test is perfect, by the way. Uh, there are a lot of assay issues. People need to Uh, understand. And most doctors, we don't like sit around and and talk about the assay issues. In fact, endocrinologists do it more often than other doctors. And it's, to be honest, it's more of my mentors because they were a lot of them involved in making a lot of these lab assays. And and there's a lot of intricacies and and potential error. And so people need to not hang their hats on all of these labs that everyone wants to get because they're not perfect.
0: Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that. And that brings up this question about like, how good is your doctor and and you know i love doctors i'm so glad uh, and thankful for modern medicine but mm-hmm. there's a lot of guys who are and struggling to make it in this crazy system and i think my old doctor yeah. i just switched to a new guy who who is really younger and re- really with it and really interested in lifestyle medicine and not yeah. just well let's uh, blood pressure's high let's put you on a, on a blood yeah. pressure lowering medication yeah. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's a, lot a of
1: that tough with, uh, thing. system. Uh, you know, we, we have a system that kind of forces, you know, the, these doctors to, to see people every 15 minutes. They don't have time to like, kind of look in it's, it's, you know, it's really bad for doctor patient relationships. That's, um, and I don't know what to do about that. It's beyond the scope of this talk, but uh, absolutely that's a whole issue too.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, if you're listening, just make sure you're Getting a good doctor who spends time with you and, and who takes in these intricacies and eccentricities or of, of the lab tests and 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 the nuances and all the other words that go along with how how things can change. Well, um, let's talk a little bit about metabolism, slow metabolism, and and how that relates to hormones. Uh, okay. You you mentioned genetics. Let's talk a little bit about hormones. Obviously, thyroid has to do with that, but I know that leptin can affect our metabolic rate as well. What's at play yeah. there? Say when we start to have some metabolic decline, and and does age have anything to do with it, or is it just these hormones? What what's going yeah. on?
1: So generally, without pathology, without a, a, a real problem to you know a part of the body. Um, people generally have a slower metabolism as they age. Now, um, we can talk about a lot of things, uh, related to aging that aren't necessarily supposed to happen just because we age, but let's face it, aging does come with a little bit of a decline. And what we need to do is keep up a really good lifestyle to try to prevent that decline. And, and if we do get a decline, then, then, uh, revamp our lifestyle, you know, the diet exercise stuff we talk about in a much more Personalized manner. But all those hormones do play a role. Um, you know, leptin, you know, we don't monitor leptin or anything. We just know about it for how it uh, works because it does help us understand it. And, and leptin is the hormone that comes from fat cells that is basically supposed to communicate energy balance with the hypothalamus that controls um, all these hormones and, and energy regulation. Um, uh, and, and again, there are some monogenic causes of. Leptin deficiency, so that certainly causes uh, dramatic obesity. Uh, leptin um, receptor dysfunction would cause that because um, leptin is supposed to be on our side. So leptin is right. supposed to basically make the hypothalamus say, "Okay, hey, whoa, we got enough, we got enough energy. Let's uh, let's pull back the appetite and and let's make our metabolism crank up." Um, one of the things it does is with with a lot of adiposity, the leptin goes up, and even though they're can become this leptin resistance in the hypothalamus, which is part of the issue with obesity and, and metabolism. Um, it can actually stimulate a rise in TSH, thyroid stimulating hormone, mm. which of course is the primary way we screen for and diagnose hypothyroidism. So sometimes patients with obesity have absolutely no thyroid problem at all, um, but their TSH is a little high. And so a lot of people will treat that, which if you've if done right, it's, harmless but then we're just over medicating to some degree um but that's just something to be aware of so some people might think they have a little bit of hypothyroidism but it's it's really just the obesity causing the leptin to stimulate the thyroid stimulating hormone to go up which goes up if your thyroid hormone itself is is not up to par and that's how we diagnose so
0: lose fat don't necessarily go on uh thyroid uh, replacement
1: yeah. yeah again i mean and, and that just takes an appropriate evaluation and diagnosis i mean that's you know, I see it sometimes and and we try to diagnose the cause. Anytime we, we look for and then find hormone deficiencies, we need to look for the etiology. Um, this can get into the low testosterone stuff you were talking about earlier. Yeah. There's a lot of media and a lot of attention and some of it's because of big pharma, you know, where we allow them to market here in the United States. Um, I don't know where I stand on that politically. It's like a little, eh, I don't know what to say, but, um, uh, but people need to not just go think they, not everyone has hypogonadism. I can tell you that for free. Um, and not, do everyone you have low T
0: symptoms right. of low so T, right? That's it's totally aggressive marketing. It yeah. is aggressive marketing. Um, <laughs> but, uh, supplement companies aren't any better though. And, no, and at least no, the testosterone true. actually does raise your testosterone versus <laughs> some of these T boosters Correct. are out there.
1: Yeah. So. Um, so it all it all runs together. I can't, I'm not sure what I was was getting at with that, but um, uh, but yeah, yeah, we're having fact, you know,
0: too much fun. But yeah. but I'll, I, another one I want to ask you about, which gets thrown around a lot, cortisol, the yep. stress hormone, and yep. people say, oh well, cortisol it makes you store fat, especially around yep. your midsection. However, yep. when you go into a calorie deficit, your cortisol goes up. That's that's pretty well documented. Yes, what can you true. tell us? About cortisol and and fat storage, fat loss. So, too much cortisol,
1: truly in a in a bad way, is called Cushing syndrome. Uh, the most common way to get that is from medicine. We, you know, the medical. There are a lot of reasons to take steroids, pred, you know, prednisone, dexamethasone, inhaled steroids, topical steroids, all these things because they're anti inflammatories. Just like NSAIDs are non steroidal anti inflammatories. Well, cortisol is the steroid, like the in- inflammatory, anti-inflammatory steroid of our body. Um, too much of it is really bad. It's bad for our metabolism and it does cause us to store fat where we don't want it. It's bad on our bones. It causes all the other hormones to, to shut down. Um, so taking too much, um, whether it's oral prednisone because you have a rheumato- rheumatologic disease, um or you're getting injections that can sometimes cause uh, too much in your body mm. and cause those problems. If uh, Sometimes even people who use high doses of inhaled steroids or even topical steroids, which seem amazing that it could do this, but it can cause problems. It can suppress your own adrenal axis, meaning your own body's cortisol levels don't work. And, and it can cause you to have too much uh, and kind of a Cushing syndrome. But the, the pathology of real pushing syndrome is either a pituitary tumor making too much of the cortisol stimulating hormone, and that's called HCTH, or an adrenal tumor that's just making too much cortisol on its own. And that's maybe more common than we think, because that can be pretty subtle, um, by the way, but that's digging into the weeds a little bit. And, and also there can be tumors elsewhere in the body that can make that cortisol stimulating hormone. And when we get too much cortisol. We store, our metabolism goes down, we lose muscle, we get muscle weakness and atrophy, we get big bellies, big purple stretch marks, red round faces, fatigue, um, brittle bones, bad diabetes, it's, you know, makes sugar go up. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very catabolic hormone, meaning it breaks stuff down, but it, but it also builds fat in the wrong places. Um,
0: But what you're outside of, yeah, outside of those extremes with medication and and, and disease. So that's the real excess cortisol.
1: Now, there there is something called pseudo Cushing's where people without one of those problems can have high enough cortisols to kind of mimic that and and also not be good. And that can happen. It can happen in pregnancy. um, It can even happen in obesity um, because... uh, 11 beta steroid dehydrogenase-1. It's a big word for an enzyme that converts uh, cortisone, the inactive steroid, back into cortisol. A lot of people might know about the other one, the number two one that's in the kidneys, which convert cortisol to the inactive cortisone. And people who eat licorice or chew tobacco can sometimes block that and cause problems. Um, but anyways, uh, these so, so in obesity, you can have higher than... You'd really kind of want levels of cortisol because of that enzyme and um, significant mental and emotional stress or severe depression can have uh, elevated levels of cortisol. And and those patients, uh, especially the obesity patients who have the kind of a PCOS, so they have hair, uh, right. polycystic ovarian syndrome, polycystic much you sure? females, they get hair and, and they, they can really look like Cushing's. And we often try to rule out Cushing's in those patients before we treat them like PCOS, by the way. Um, Interesting. And, and sometimes even too much alcohol. And those patients can look a little Cushingoid, so they can actually get the detriments of that high cortisol. And, but it's a lot of it still, it's not like we're treating a cortisol issue. We treat the underlying issues.
0: The lifestyle. And, yeah. yeah,
1: And other things that do raise cortisol are, um, you know, just physical stress. That's why we have cortisol for stress. It's a stress hormone, right? Um, Malnutrition, starvation, like you talked about, uh, so cortisol levels do go up. And if you check cortisol in those patients, they don't look cushingoid because that's like that. this gets back to the anorexia and malnutrition stuff. Um, their cortisol levels be high. So that's bad. So not only are they catabolic because they're not getting enough calories in, but now they also have a hormone that's working against them, too. Obviously, it's mm. it's up to try to help that, you know, it, because it does increase appetite, right? I mean, that's that's why we don't like to pop up in the middle of the night and stay up all night and make our cortisol levels go through the roof and eat all the donuts in the nurse's office, right? That's what happens when we're on call as doctors. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but, 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 but what do you do about that? So all the media out there about, well, your cortisol levels are high, blah, 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 let's block it. No, no. You don't want, you definitely don't want to take a medicine that actually blocks cortisol. So anything you buy over the counter doesn't, because if it does, you, then you go.
0: Even phosphatidylserine, I've, I've read. Well, can, I can,
1: I, I'd have to look into that more, but the, but the one medicine that we have, it's, uh, um, medroxy, um, oh, geez, I'm drawing a blank on it, but, um, we so use So You're it,
0: saying a full blown medication, something yeah, to, doctor to, to, prescribed. That, we, that we
1: use, um, in, uh, in, in Cushing's disease, <laughs> when they have diabetes, because it improves their glycemic control, um, mm. it's the it's the same as um, RU four eighty six the the um, the abortion pill actually has the, it's the same exact medicine. So yeah, in for most people who don't have pathologically elevated cortisols, this gets back to lifestyle therapy stress reduction, improved dietary quality, not excessive exercise, but appropriate exercise and recovery and diet to go with that exercise. And and it could be, you know, maybe you need to see psychiatry or psychology or counseling like that. Maybe, you know, maybe there is an alcohol problem, but, but most people don't have a true cortisol problem that needs to be treated.
0: Could you theoretically, or maybe you've even seen this, or maybe you've known people like this from your bodybuilding times because bodybuilders, I don't know how they get on stage and you can see their butt striations and they're not dead. Right. But yeah. like, could you theoretically exercise a lot over exercise under and really cause a problem there? Oh, sure. I mean, that's not to that's, maybe Cushing's leveled, uh, well, I, cortisol I think the, the, levels, but yeah, the, uh, I think the, the cortisol
1: levels being high is, is a bad thing. Um, but they're not going to look cushingoid. It's, it's going to be bad on their bones and stuff like that, um, and maybe bad on some other metabolic processes. But just like uh, think about um, female athlete triad, hypothalamic amenorrhea, where right. the energy deficit, the over exercising, um, and then they, they don't get menses because their, their, pituit, their hypothalamic pituitary gonadal axis, their ovaries, they're not working anymore. They're not making enough estrogen, so they're not having their periods that's a problem their their cortisols are also probably up by the way their growth hormone is going to be up growth hormone goes up with starvation, but the igf one that that is made in the liver from growth hormone that does the work is going to be low in that state
0: mm, <laughs> interesting we,
1: we were in fact we were just talking about this in uh, in my uh, group today uh, in academics we were talking about one of my elder uh, uh, mentors was talking about how when he suspects that uh, an issue with someone's inappropriate weight loss is really anorexia. He'll check all these hormones that we know what happens when you don't eat. And, and that can, that can kind of give it away.
0: But right. Also so they bad. have this it's elevated, okay. yeah. what, what's
1: that? Yeah, we, but it's all bad. We don't want people to do that. We want people right. to not have these problems. So. It's yeah. so
0: interesting because uh, intermittent fasting for a little while there, they were talking about, Oh, it going without food elevates growth hormone levels. But you're saying that, if that's the reason, if malnutrition is the reason, you're probably not going to get the effects because growth hormone stimulates insulin growth factor one, which is doing the, which actually does the work, yeah, and that's uh, not going to be elevated. Yeah, or am I off on there? No, I, I mean, yeah, that's
1: it's that's an interesting uh, point that that I suppose the intermittent fasters say that the clinical relevance of that, even if even if it was a good thing. Uh, I can't imagine there's a lot of the stuff that they do, it has no clinical relevance. So again, like I said, if you would have asked me two years ago about, about uh, intermittent fasting, I would have said, no way, man, that sounds horrible. And we're going to, you know, we're going to shut down all these things. We want to keep going. Well, it turns out I was wrong because they've studied it. And if it, if it equals the same energy deficit in a controlled manner as some other diet, it works. So if it works for patients, that's great. Again, these are my patients with obesity, and diabetes. Right. So if it, if it works for them to, to not have breakfast, have a shake for lunch, and then a very reasonable, huge vegetable and fish dinner and snack on some nuts, that's great for them. I wouldn't be able to do it. I'd end up punching somebody in the face. I get hangry. In fact, I don't, people don't <laughs> like to talk. I was right before I left home, I was talking to my dad and wife. We're working on our house up at our, our new house and I was being short. And she's like, all right, you obviously need to go eat. Goodbye. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Spencer and I both have a problem with being hangry. People think we're very nice until suddenly we we somehow are late for lunch.
0: <laughs> you know what's interesting? I used to be like that until I tried intermittent fasting a while a couple years ago. Now I don't now I eat breakfast, but it kind of yeah. reset. I don't know if it reset my ghrelin release or what the hell yeah. it did. But yeah. I now can go without food longer without uh having that issue.
1: Yeah. I don't I mean, and, and you, you main, you stay pretty lean, right? You said.
0: Yeah. Um, I recently like, in the I had an injury and I put on weight and then I lost it and yeah, I'm, I'm fairly lean, but I'm not as lean as I probably need or should be.
1: Yeah. Well, I just, I always wondered if maybe, you know, Spencer and I, cause we, we just always have maintained very lean physique and I, I wonder if that's why. You know, we, again, getting into the leptin that we don't have that much leptin. <laughs> we don't have that much back. Right. And um, I don't know that I could tolerate doing that. And, and we work out, you know, we, I'm
0: not as empty. lean as so. you. That is, uh, <laughs> if that's what you were asking, are you as ripped as me, bro? The answer is no, no, you're, you okay. guys are, are <laughs> lean. At <laughs> least I should say, Carl, not yet. I'm on my way yeah, because right. hey. I got to show everybody that 40 isn't, you know, that's- over the hill. All right. A couple
1: of years, uh, give me a couple of years and then we'll, we'll do it together and we'll, uh, we'll show what we got.
0: Oh yeah. You're what? 37, 38. I'm going to be,
1: yeah, I'll be, I'll be 38 in uh, November. So
0: cool, man. Cool. Well, (laughs) yeah, it's not that much different on this side, so whatever, but, (laughs) uh, but psychologically it is, you're like, Oh, 40, but, uh, Carl to stay on track here, could we talk a, a little bit about testosterone and estrogen testosterone specifically yep. for, for guys. Cause guys love to talk about testosterone and then estrogen yeah. women are told that estrogen dominance, which is, I don't know if that's a thing that you talk about as an endocrinologist, but too much estrogen I don't. I don't <laughs> just to get that right out of the way. But that, that yeah. high level of estrogen to progesterone. Um, so can you yeah. tell us a little bit about those hormones and how they play into fat loss? So
1: like I said, all, yeah, all these hormones definitely do play a role, not enough of a role that people need to be worried about them on a daily basis. But, um, if somebody has a pituitary lesion or a testicular problem and they have very legit hypogonadism, that is bad. They, it's bad for their muscles and they tend to have worse body composition. So we know testosterone is important for males and body composition and we have at least some observational studies to show that for the patients with obesity and low testosterone, it probably does help to treat them if it's truly low. Now, the problem is most patients with low testosterone, hypogonadism, it's not from one of those pathological causes. And this is one I was talking about. Aging is, is not something that should cause low testosterone. It happens because Most people, unfortunately, have non-optimal or suboptimal lifestyles, and a lot of it's from obesity or just chronic disease. So a lot of things can cause a problem with testosterone access from the hypothalamus to the pituitary to the testicles. And the most common one I see is uh, obesity. Patients with significant obesity, diabetes, sleep apnea, all this stuff causes testosterone. So... Then this gets into, well, what do we want to treat? I, like, I prefer, if I had that disease, I would prefer to treat the underlying cause, the obesity. Um, and that's been shown. We can improve their testosterone with treating the obesity with gastric bypass or meds or lifestyle, or really all of the above. Um, and their testosterone levels go back to normal. Uh, that's not to say that if we truly diagnose it as an obesity-associated hypogonadism, that that replacement is wrong or, or um Inappropriate because it might help them. Maybe they feel better, and then they're working out and eating well and, and all that stuff, and and uh, and that would be good. One of the other little nuggets, though, if any, you know, physicians or nurses or anybody else are listening or just people understand, when when we have obesity and insulin resistance, our sex hormone binding globulin goes
0: mm. up,
1: right? Um, or I mean, it goes or it goes down. It goes down. So thus, the total testosterone, which usually gets checked,
0: oh. looks. Like Right.
1: So if we don't calculate the free testosterone out of that sex hormone binding globulin and albumin, then we can mistake patients who don't actually have hypogonadism for having kind of low testosterone.
0: Carl, that's so, so important, that's an important, man. Because yeah. the times I got my testosterone checked by my primary, he just looked at obviously I'm not obese and and I pro- you know probably don't have right. that issue or whatever, but he de- definitely didn't check my. Sex hormone binding globulin, which, if you're listening, that's the thing that binds to testosterone that doesn't let it do its magic on your muscles and brain and everywhere else that it works. So, um, and, and
1: most testosterone is, is bound to that, so and most of it's bound to, to that. Testosterone is even free, and um, and so the free is what does the work though.
0: Okay, so important for everyone listening if you're going to get your levels checked, you should probably get like a full panel. Is that what? You would recommend,
1: yeah. Well, yeah, and and but this is going to be you know, uh, healthcare area dependent. We we happen to have in my system right now, we happen to have the, the lab that we prefer includes a pretty good total testosterone and it comes with a sex hormone binding globulin and albumin so that it calculates that free testosterone. The other thing we were talking about lab issues, the the there are lab issues with the measuring the free testosterone. I don't they. I don't trust them anymore.
0: Interesting. Even
1: though some some of them can be good, I, I don't trust them. I, I much prefer calculating because if you get a good total testosterone lab, that's pretty good. And then you throw in a SHBG and albumin; those are pretty good too. So you can calculate it out. Hopefully, the computer does it for you. <laughs> but um, but yeah, that's important. And and the other thing is that, that I would tell people um, don't just ask for your testosterone to be checked in general you know, unless you're really just doing it for academic purposes, but, um, but really only do it. If, if you notice that you suddenly have like a low sex drive, like truly, like you don't even care. Like you do, you're not even thinking about it anymore. You have low, decreased sexual thoughts, uh, low libido. It's not because of a relationship uh, issue you have. Um, and uh, uh, you know, maybe, maybe you have some erectile dysfunction. You're not getting morning erections anymore. Your muscles aren't uh, responding like they should to exercise, maybe you're sh- shaving less frequently, that's that's when you should get checked. And then it should definitely be um, fasting and first thing in the morning, or at least after sleeping. Yeah. Those are important things. For-
0: yeah, great takeaway there, Carl. What about estrogen and how that relates to fat loss in women or or yeah. even men? Some people have said, not endocrinologists we just qualify that yeah. there that men can have higher levels of estrogen and that can create this environment in their body where they're, they're getting gynecomastia or they're storing butt fat because they have like this hormonal imbalance. Any, any truth to that?
1: Uh, so with every little bit of uh, crazy stuff you hear out there, there is some truth. That's where they, they pull it from generally. Um, so certainly if, if guys show up with gynecomastia or, or truly like female looking issues, we need to start looking for estrogen because too much estrogen in a guy is not right. That's wrong. And um, so we have to look for tumors and things like that. Now, just like I talked about the cortisol enzyme with, with obesity, um, fat cells also have uh, aromatase. So aromatase converts testosterone into estrogen. So that's part of the problem with obesity associated hypogonadism because then estrogen goes back to the hypothalamus and decreases the hormones from the pituitary telling the testicles to make testosterone. So so that is a problem. Again, it doesn't mean you need to take an aromatase inhibitor uh, to treat it, although it's been done and it's been studied. And and again, some endocrinologists do that. Um, and, and there are a few other things we can do. We can, we can block the estrogen up at the hypothalamus and pituitary also to help with that situation. That's, again, get into that functional hypogonadism. Um, but on the other hand, it turns out that there are appropriate levels of estrogen in men. And when uh, I can't quote you those exact levels, but there's, there are observational studies that show men who have this sort of sweet spot, tend to do the best long term, both in body composition and mortality, uh, uh, you know, actual cardiovascular type outcomes. And that's, that's good. And that's a reason why when you hear about these guys take, you know, first of all, they shouldn't, a lot of guys, most guys shouldn't be taking testosterone, especially, you know, excessive amounts that, you know, that's wrong anyways, but then they think they need to be taking all these other hormones. And sometimes they take um, aromatase inhibitors, which block the conversion to estrogen, which might, sound right that sounds reasonable but it it's probably not a good idea based upon the data we have and i would not do that and i don't prescribe that um so so estrogen is important for men um we don't want it too high especially not pathologically high um, but we also don't want it to make it low inappropriately especially not with meds or any
0: way you want your hormones your males who you they need to be comfortably in touch with their feminine side hormonally (laughs)
1: Yeah, and we really shouldn't be checking them if we don't need to. That's the whole point. If, again, this gets back to you know doing what we know is good for your hormones without worrying what the numbers are all the time. Um, now, getting to the females, so uh, yeah, the estrogen dominance thing is, is kind of interesting. That's, you know, there, there's a little something to why they come up with that, and that has to do with the gynecoid uh, fat uh, distribution and stuff like that.
0: That's the fat but around the hips and certain- the butt, right?
1: Yeah. What, what actually happens is that, what do you think, what do you think most females say about menopause? Do they gain weight or lose weight when they lose that estrogen?
0: They gain weight in their midsection,
1: right? Yeah. Well, yeah. So, so generally speaking, the average is for a little bit of weight gain in menopause. Now, not everybody, a lot of people, you know, we, we want to prevent that with good diet and good exercise and things like that. And, um, observationally, at least the data that I'm Familiar with uh, those women who went on to hormone therapy for reasons not for this. This is not a reason to go on hormone therapy necessarily. But they went on hormone therapy. They had less weight gain. So, if anything, the horn, and 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 you know most of the outcomes by the way with estrogen progesterone. I I would prefer to only be on estrogen. But if you have a uterus, you have to be on estrogen and progesterone anyways. Um, uh, but it, but there's probably a benefit metabolically for menopausal females to be on hormone therapy again not enough of a reason to go on to it but but certainly if you have hot flashes and all that stuff and and you're a low risk of uh, breast cancer and and some other things that the physicians have to look into it's certainly a a reasonable option and, and and you might as well take some of the other benefits that go with
0: it Yeah, well said. And probably the biggest takeaway I'm getting away from speaking with you, which I kind of already knew, but you've really hammered it home. You've really given us the details is that for all the people talking about, for all the non-endocrinologists talking about how we need to eat a certain way and exercise a certain way to optimize our hormones, it really is the things that screw up our hormones the most are either being too fat. Or being malnourished, so, and if we're right yeah, in the right. middle, it's right. uh, it's like, hey, pay attention yeah. to it for academic purposes, for you know, knowing your numbers. But it really is about staying in that healthy body fat range. And too much body fat really messes up a number of different hormones, as you as you've explained yeah. for us in deep detail, and also going too low in or being malnourished also screws up your hormones or being too low in body fat, particularly for women, like you mentioned with the triathletes really screws up your hormones, but being in that healthy, normal range, that's what your focus should be. Not on like, Hey, can I eat certain superfood or take a magic supplement to get me balanced out? So I'll finally lose fat. It's got to be done through lifestyle, through exercise.
1: Right. Yeah. And if there are issues that seem bizarre, like symptoms that seem beyond just kind of struggling with weight, that's where then you need to tell your doctor about those. And we could list all those if you guys want to. (laughs) But um, that's where you need to, you know, that's where we can focus those and say, okay, now I do need to suddenly check you for too much cortisol or or growth hormone deficiency or hypogonadism or um, hypothyroidism or all these other hormones that do play a role and certainly don't help your cause when they're deficient or too much. Um, but otherwise, you know, optimize sleep, optimize exercise without overtraining, get enough rest, but then get enough non-exercise activity and definitely optimize the diet. We got to work on energy balance, but also the quality, a lot of veg, you know, kind of plant-based, but lots of good protein too. I, I'm not a, you know, a vegan pusher, but you can get enough protein if you're a vegan too. But I like to promote fish and, and, you know, low calorie dairy and, and poultry and and some lean beef, you know, I mean, there may be some issues, not eat a ton of beef every day, but, uh, uh, you know, eggs and stuff like that. Um, if you eat, if you eat a whole food, good quality, energy appropriate diet, that may be easier said than done, but that's what we have to strive for.
0: Yeah, that is perfectly put, Carl. And uh, man, I I feel like we've just scratched the surface. It's been so much fun catching up with you, and I would love to have you back on. Maybe we could talk about. So we could see some of the questions that comes up for listeners, and and have a follow up. But uh, what I'd be personally interested in would be uh, you've done such a great job today in talking about like your professional expertise and how you see things, and and how you you know uh, how you educate people to kind of stay away from like the mainstream media and, and the the marketers. But I would love to hear, because I know your interest, you're 38, you're concerned about being awesome when you're 40, (laughs) 50, 60 up what you're excited about, what you're looking forward to and what you plan on doing to stay in awesome shape for the rest of your life. Besides just the usual exercise and eat the same way that you've been doing But man, it's been such a pleasure catching up with you. For the last takeaway, what would you say you wanted, you hope someone takes away from this interview with you? Yeah, I think, um,
1: you know, talking about hormones, and I I feel like we've kind of said this a few times, um, hormones are sexy. I'm an endocrinologist, so I certainly think they're sexy. I don't think people need to get hung up on worrying about what their hormones are doing. But focus on personalizing their own lifestyle therapies, um, maybe with some help, maybe with a doctor, nutritionist, um, behavioralist, life coach, exercise professional, um, and and seek medical attention if you have symptoms that seem out of the norm that could be associated with a hormone issue. Um, If interested, uh, there's something called, uh, the, my hormone hormone health network. It's from the endocrine society. They have a lot of good things on those topics, but you know, when you start noticing weird changes to your skin and hair and, you know, um, or your testicles are shrinking or you're, uh, you're getting big purple stretch marks, or you're suddenly intolerant to the cold and um, maybe you are gaining weight and it really, really, really doesn't make sense for what you've always been doing, that's when you should probably get checked out by a doctor and, and have a good, go through that review of symptoms and, uh, and, and have an exam and, and then maybe get some hormones checked. I would suggest to people not just order hormone labs online because it takes a lot of clinical context to interpret those and you can certainly skew your own thinking Uh, when you look at those results and don't know what to do with them and you can go down some weird rabbit holes, by the way,
0: man, they should get you on Tim Ferriss to straighten every, everyone (laughs) out on there. They get a little, they get a little foolish with some of the things, uh, that they track and talk about. So yeah, well said Carl. Uh, and man, where would you like people to go and find out more about you or to connect with you?
1: Well, um, our website that we have that I'd like to do work more with is, uh, www.docswholift.com. Um, and please feel free to use the hashtag docs who lift. That would be awesome. Um, but I have a Facebook page, uh, Dr. Carl Nadolsky, um, and, uh, my Twitter and Instagram handle is just at D R K A R L N A D O L S K Y. Um, so I, you know, I try to share stuff. I'm not as, um, Internet.
0: Uh, you have a real job, savvy. Carl. <laughs> is what you're trying to say. Everyone else is on the internet <laughs> making Facebook posts eight times a day. All the fitness pros. Yeah,
1: so, yeah I, I try to post stuff that's that's targeted that my patients might find interest in. If it's something I ate that I thought would be that's a, a reasonable take take home point for them, I'll post that. Um, I share a lot of studies that I think. Sometimes it's just a new study that says, oh guess what? Exercise is good. Well, duh. And I'll share it and say exercise is medicine. Um, just, to, just to encourage people to have another platform for support and uh, you know, just encourage everyone to, to keep up a good lifestyle. And and sometimes there's some medical education there too. I'll, I'll share things about new drugs or some stuff like that, hormone issues.
0: Very cool, Carl. I'll have all that on there. And yeah, I follow you on Instagram and you put out that very interesting research on sleep recently which i want to look up that paper and learn yeah. more cuz it's so important yeah. so it's the yeah. unsung hero of lifestyle yes. everybody's like exercise right. more eat less eat your superfoods what about sleep ah man yep. you know mm. Yes, sleep is a huge issue
1: and everyone in fact i should say this i swear to you half more than half the people who come into our endocrine clinic with hormone problems it ends up being a sleep problem.
0: Interesting. So for you, I'm, I'm, I'm not,
1: it is, I, I talk about sleep. I swear as much as I talk about real hormones.
0: Oh, uh, we, we got to get back. We, we got to get your, <laughs> your take on that next time though. I, I don't want to keep you for like three more hours. Cause I feel like it would be easy <laughs> to have a podcast that long. And, and just uh, yeah. you know soak up all your knowledge. But Carl, thanks so much, man. <laughs> it's been a pleasure again, really awesome. and uh, I'm looking forward to doing this again soon.
1: All right, sounds
0: good. Thanks. What an eye-opening episode. I don't know about you, but I learned so much. This is the Ted's Takeaways portion of the interview where I talk about the biggest takeaways And I only have one because I know it was a long interview, and that is gaining fat is what messes up your hormones, not the other way around. So if you want to optimize your hormones, the best thing you can do is lose body fat. And if you want my help with that, again, today is your last day. Go to legendarylightpodcast.com slash coaching and sign up now for Legendary Lean. All right, I hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope you learned a lot. I hope you cleared up some confusion and I hope you're able to spot the charlatans out there who are trying to sell you on ideas that really sound sexy, but don't pan out, don't give results in the real world. That's all I've got. Have an amazing week and I'll speak to you soon.